Welcome to Dragon Talk! We're clapping in unison. All the way. We have got a great episode for the best episode of Dragon ever. Talk, the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Hi. I'm Greg Tito. I'm Shelly Mazanoble. We are here today to sing it out. To talk about dragons. <laughs> some are red and some are black. <laughs> some are green and some are silver. <laughs> that didn't rhyme. You'd be terrible at freestyling. <laughs> It <laughs> doesn't work at all. Uh, we have got an <gasps> amazing guest uh, it's so today. Hot in here. We are going <laughs> It's very hot in here. Um, <laughs> clapping the studio audience. We're going to be speaking to author Cody Keplinger. Yes. Very exciting. Yes. Uh, she has written tons of amazing books. Pretty much since she was born. And is a big advocate for all things D&D, as well as uh, playing Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, For those people who may be uh, visually impaired or or hearing impaired, uh, all types of things. And she's going to talk all about that, as well as the creativity and storytelling that she brings. And I just want to pick her brain about still living in New York City. Yeah. I love the New Yorks. I don't make it, uh, 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 you know, a secret. Um, Yeah, and I want to live vicariously through (laughs) and talk about all of the fun things that happen in New York City. So we'll do that. We'll make it happen. Uh, we'll also have uh, some lore you should know with Chris Perkins. Yes. Yes, and you're going to listen to that segment as well. Always. Always. Yes. Uh, what are some fun things going on in the D&D world uh, that you want our listeners to know, Shelley? Dungeon Mayhem. Battle for Baldur's Gate. Coming in September. Ooh, September? But don't wait. September is coming? September. Really? Mm-hmm. What date in September? 17th? No, that's 19th? What? 17th? Now I have to call up the thing. It's on the screen. There it is. September 17th. That is not far away. But don't wait. uh, Get the base game. If you haven't played Dungeon Mayhem yet, please go play it. Yeah. It's so fun. It is very fun. Easy to learn. Pick up in two minutes and play a game in ten. Playing like crazy with Quinn. Yeah? Yep. Which, uh, Which deck does he like to play with? Now he's into the wizard. Ooh, I like the wizard. He too. calls him the lightning bolt guy. Oh, the lightning he bolt guy. He loves vampiric touch, the card that swaps hit points. Yes, that one's really fun. And he'll he always like goads me into like doing a lot of damage to him. He's like, "Give me all your damage, man. And I can like, take it. Give it to me." Okay, vampiric touch. Ooh, you got me again. That jerk. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. I love it. And there's gonna be two new characters. Yes, uh, two new decks. Minsk that you can play and with. Boo. In one deck, and Jahera, the shape-shifting druid, in the other. She's very cool. They're all cool. You know what else comes out on September 17th? Baldur's Gate, Descent into a Burnout. What? Yes, that is the adventure. Uh, what a great day. Set in Baldur's Gate, but then it might end up in hell. You never know. Wow. Uh, it. We have been saying it is kind of like... Mad Max Fury Road meets Dante's Inferno slash there's warlords in hell. There's a lot of things going on in Baldur's Sounds Gate. Good. That may be nefarious. I don't know. I guess you'll have to play and find out. You will have to play and find out. Sounds like a fun one to DM. Not that I would, but for other people, I think DMs are going to have fun. That's true. And you can watch uh, a lot of the programming that's been going on here on twitch.tv slash dnd. Having to do with this adventure. Uh, so the High Rollers, uh, Mark Humes has been doing some stuff in uh, Avernus. Um, and uh, we'll be having a lot more programming like that coming this fall. So You can also go back and watch some of the programming from D&D Live. Oh, yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Seems you were like there. a million years ago. What did you, wasn't that fun? 
Yes. That was like the first one you went to. Yes. Right? Hopefully not the last. Ho- I, well, it's going to be the last one that's in hell. Yeah. Well, at least for a while. Okay. <laughs> but I'll go anywhere. But, well, I don't care. It doesn't have to be hell. What about the top of a mountain? Would you do that? Yeah. What about the bottom of the ocean? Would you do that? Curious. On the moon? Totally. D&D Live from the moon yes. 2020. You heard it first. Make it happen. What? <laughs> yes. To the moon, everyone. I'm also that <laughs> audience guy. member who's like, I, I can't. I, I have no rhythm. Get it together. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, we will be telling you all about what's happening with D&D Live sometime in the future i know but you know we're thinking about it we're making plans always thinking palma and i had a meeting about it (gasps) you guys i'm gonna show you the whiteboard right now no i'm not going to you uh we gotta get going so let's go listen to mr chris perkins and i talk about some lore that shelly should know got it we're changing the name of the segment okay bing bong bing bong Hello, everyone, and welcome to a segment of Lore You Should Know. That's where we talk about little bits of Dungeons & Dragons lore for, you know, information. Maybe you can use it in your game. However you want to use this information, it's up to you, really. What do you think about that, Chris? I'm just happy to dump it out of my head and pour it into somebody else's. It's one of my my joys of my week is to be able to extract (laughs) things from your head. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and today we are going to talk about uh, the Morn lands and the Lord of Blades uh, in a little setting called Eberron. Indeed, yes. And everybody knows by now that Eberron was launched with third edition. Yes. Well, uh, oh, well, it was launched during. For, yeah, with it, it was. It was the first new world that we'd created for third edition with much fanfare for, yes. for, for finding out who is going Correct. to create this this setting yes and the prim- the fundamental premise of eberron is that on the continent of corvair people there are recovering from a big war and it's kind of a cold war story mm. but the war did not end well for everybody on the continent specifically the nation of sire or sire depending on who you talk to and how, how they pronounce it exactly uh they, they don't pronounce it at all because they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> they are pronounced dead. <laughs> they're pronounced dead. <laughs> um, so uh, that nation got obliterated in a magical, question mark, catastrophe mm. that left all of Sire um, a wasteland. Okay. Which, so now that territory, which is kind of in the heart of Corvair, is called the Mornland, uh, and it signaled the end of the last war. That event um, was a Hiroshima-like awakening for the people on this continent and caused them to, to basically stop and led to, the forma- led to the formation of the Treaty of Thronehold, an agreement by which the surviving nations would come to a peace. Okay. Was the war uh, – did it have a – like two sides or was it like It had many sides. Oh, okay. Um, there were uh, – Sire was one of the five nations – and it was these five nations that basically uh, went after each other and allies glommed onto various but there nations. Was, but there was five different forces. All there were five different for forces um, and none of them having any lasting alliance with any of the others. And it dragged the whole continent into a war practically. What was the war over? It was, it was essentially a war. Um, so long ago, 
we're sort of getting a little bit off topic here, but prior to all of this, those five nations were a unified kingdom called Galifar. Mm-hmm. And when the last king of Galifar died, the scions all started to fight for who should become the new king. Mm-hmm. And none of them could come to agreement. And so they all splintered off and went to war against each other. I see. Got it. Um, and so that's how, that's how all this mess started. And then Sire was one of those five yeah. nations and it was poosh, exploded. Yes. Now, and the, the circumstances or the, what causes explosion is a big question mark. It's one of the great mysteries of the campaign setting and has never been revealed. Um, and so part of that was by design so that the DM can customize their campaign. We present all sorts of possibilities but it's really up to the DM to decide how their Mornland came to be. I see. Now, uh, what is the Mornland like? Is it a complete desert wasteland? I'm glad you asked. So prior to all of this, it was just like any other nation in a temperate setting, beautiful and lots of idyllic villages and you know big cities and uh, the latest magical technology. And now it is um, a it's wreckage and destroyed, haunted, desolate ruins of cities and towns and factories and towers and other locations scattered about. What's the deadliest part of the Mornland is actually its border because after all of this happened, after this magical calamity, this poisonous vapor or mist Mm. basically coalesced around the borders of Sire and stayed. And within this deadly, poisonous, toxic mist... There are things called living spells, magic, magical spells that have taken on a life of their own and become sentient. Ooh. There are also other threats there. But once you get past this curtain of death into the heart of, of the Mornland itself, you can find places there that are safe to travel where you're not breathing in poisonous air or dealing with random spell effects exploding and going off around you. Why, why is the mist um, only relegated to the border? We don't know. As part of the part of yeah, the mystery, part of the mystery. Interesting. It does not spread over it. it. Not even through some, you know, stiff breeze does it blow over into the other nations. It hugs the borders of what used to be Sire. Okay. Suggesting that obviously this was a calculated by whom we don't know thing that whoever did this or whatever did this did not want it to exceed a certain reach. Interesting. Yeah. So it might be one of the combatants in the war. It might be another force. Correct. And there are, there are plenty of reasons why it could have happened. Toward the end of the war, um, Sire or Sire was experimenting with all sorts of powerful magics. And maybe one of them just accidentally misfired or didn't go well. They were building gigantic warforged, um, basically kaiju-sized creatures. Oh, wow. Uh, to stomp around and never really got that off the ground. Maybe something went wrong with one of those. Yeah. House Caneth, which is one of the dragon-marked houses of Corvair, who is known as the House of Making, sort of ran a lot of the factories in Sire. Maybe some mad Caneth scion or heir, or some enemy insurgent sabotaged a Caneth experiment and caused it to go off. But Lots of possibilities. Lots of possibilities, regardless... What you've basically got in the heart of Corvair now is this wonderful kind of post-apocalyptic playground for DMs to stage adventures where characters can go in, maybe learn what happened to the Mornland or to Sire, or conversely, go in and see what's left. 
steal some magic that was left behind or find something in some crumbled down city. That's a very D&D, you know, core tenet that there was something that was powerful, something that had lots of uh, uh, magical properties, but it's lost Mm -hmm. now. Yes. Can you find it? Yeah. And since intrigue is such a big part of the campaign, whatever secrets you learn there are probably going to lead to other secrets and implicate other people across Corvair of some, you know, catastrophic decision. Yeah. And what I like about the Eberron setting is that it blends kind of modern ideas and storytelling with fantasy ideas and storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I'm almost thinking of this as an Area 51 or, yeah. a, or a Roswell type of Very much so. thing where you're like, no one knows what, you know, what's, what, really, what's happening, really happening there. But there's something that feels sinister. Yes. And because of the screen that this magical mist or fog has created, it's, it's tempting for evildoers to go into the Mornland to do whatever they want to do without anybody else knowing that they're doing it. Right. Because only a crazy person would go in there. <laughs> or adventurers. <laughs> or adventurers, and they're synonymous. Most <laughs> of the <time. laughs> so the, the Mornland is meant to be this metaphor for the horrors of war and this idea that you can't anticipate what will happen in a war. Nobody can plan a war and expect it to go off how it's planned. It always has unforeseen calamitous consequences and often at people who weren't, you know, guilty of anything. Right. Innocents are the ones that uh, right. uh, yes. will get hurt the most. And it's a stark, it, because it's, it's still present throughout the period after the lost war, after la- lost war, last war, um, it's, a, it's just a persistent reminder about what could happen if the five nations don't get their proverbial crap together. Are there... You know, dungeons and, and oh, yes. areas like mm-hmm. that, that that adventurers can find and yes. explore. Yep. Uh, there are lots of those. In any D&D setting, you can expect to find that, certainly in the Mornland. Certainly, um, I remember one of the first adventures that we released was um, this sort of delving down into a Kenneth Forge mm. where they made stuff. But those kinds of things are probably all over the Mornland. Right. Um, now, yeah. who is the Lord of Blades? Ah, I'm glad you mentioned him. Um, I should mention before we, before we dive into one of my favorite parts of the Everon campaign setting, even though Sire or Siri was destroyed, there are some Sirens who did survive by virtue of the fact that they were not home when, it when the calamity occurred. Okay. So I just wanted to mention, and we don't have to dwell on this, that there are essentially these homeless people who have been forced to live in the territory of their enemies or in some of the more outlying parts of the continent mm-hmm. and obviously they have feelings about what happened <laughs> and they might want to be quest givers to say hey can you go into Mornland and yes. find evidence of my family or anything right. some memento be- that was left behind or something you know make sure I turn the lights off you know, yeah. some, some cause did will- you feed so and so the dog <laughs> Yeah, your dog is mutated into something horrible now. <laughs> but here it is. I found it. <laughs> yeah. Ah! <laughs> so I just wanted to mention that. There are, there are still sirens wandering about. Interesting. And there is actually a, a refugee settlement of them in the neighboring nation of Brayland where they're kind of not well regarded. But at least it's a home. Got it. So the Lord of Blades um, was a kind of uh, late – addition to the Eberron canon during the period when the campaign setting was being constructed. Mm-hmm. And it came, he, it, 
question mark, was born out of a conversation about how warforged deal with the aftermath of war. Okay. You have a race of creatures, these warforged, these living constructs, who were built for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is to fight on behalf of whatever nation built them. And there were warforged belonging to different nations uh, constructed in Caneth forges. Mm-hmm. And since House Caneth was a neutral, dragon-marked house, mm-hmm. they basically gave Did- warforged to everybody. Got it. So you've got these warforged. The war is now over. What do they do? Big question. They're, they're sentient constructs. Yes. And uh, in, in, uh, across Corvair, to a large extent after the war, kind of treated like second-class citizens or non-citizens. Yeah. You know, you fought this war for us, but you're just a construct. Right. You, know, you have no place here. Go back home. They there is long, no home. They look longingly to, you know, toward the horizons and they see no home for them. Yeah. And we wanted to wrestle with that issue and also show kind of an extreme example of what can happen to a Warforged who's so disenfranchised with the people he was built to protect that he kind of goes, he kind of loses it and goes off the deep end and forms a modern day cult. Okay. So the Lord of Blades, we don't say what his origins were or what his role in the war was, except that he was in the war at some point, decided... Man, humans are scum. <laughs> <laughs> man, I love that man was the, the curse in that. <laughs> and uh, realizes Warforged, they were, they're, they've been horribly treated, that they deserve more, that they should have more. In fact, they should have it all. Mm. They fought this war. They should get it all. And so he retreated into the Mornland where... Oh which is not as inhospitable to Warforged as it is, as it is to breathing beings. Like right, poisonous gas. Like poisonous gas, not, them, yeah. not so much. Yeah. So he retreated there and gathered a cult of like-minded, disenfranchised Warforged who basically view him as a messiah figure, oh. a figure to lead them along a golden path toward redemption for the evils that they committed during the war and um, to carve out an empire of, these, of, of their kind which can't be ever threatened by anybody. And so that's what he's setting out to do. And the Mornland is a great starting place, but the problem with a, a being like the, the Lord of Blades is they never feel like it's enough, mm. like it's safe enough. The, the people who cast them aside are living all around them, and he can't abide that. So he's scouring the Mornland for whatever it was that destroyed Sire so that he can use it again. On all the other On everybody else. Oh, that seems like a pretty terrible antagonist. Yeah, absolutely terrible. And more to the point, to add to his uh, uh, criminal profile and his just coolness, he has basically kind of welded or attached all of these blades to his body, giving him this appellation, this Lord of Blades. I was going to ask about that. So So he he is... uh, a warforged that is yes. covered in sharp exactly he's very pointy you can't really hug him and not get shredded i mean other warforged yeah. could i guess but even they're like eh, <laughs> no no he doesn't like to be touched other than those modifications is he any or you know other than his different? other than his visionary uh, mind and his determination to wipe out the soft-bodied creatures living around him and his predilection for stapling sharp objects to his body. <laughs> <laughs> All those, he's just like, <laughs> he's like just a like normal person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you get under the, if you get under the skin, you'll see he's just a fragile little construct that. Um, yeah, 
who's trying yeah, to who got broke at one point and trying to create his own nation yes. of warforged. Correct. Now there are some stories that kind of surround the Lord of Blades. In many ways, he's kind of like a an embodiment of the of the Mornland himself. Uh, there's a lot we don't know about him, and who was he during the war? What did he do? Right. That kind of thing is kind of left out in the open. But there is some speculation. Like one of the theories is. Uh, at one point during the last last war, um, King Boranal of Brayland, who had a warforged bodyguard named Bulwark, mm-hmm. lost that bodyguard. Um, didn't know where he went. The bodyguard just disappeared. Mm. Some believe that Bulwark is the Lord of Blades. Okay. Um, and so that's interesting. Does Means the king believe that? I don't know. Um, pro- I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe he's the one who started that story. Possibly. I don't know. Um, but suffice to say... That Warforge disappeared and has, hasn't been seen since and people are speculating, well, maybe the Lord of Blades is that. Um, it's kind of interesting but unproven. Probably not true but not easily to disprove. How many um, Warforged have joined this cult? We don't know rigidly but it's hundreds if not thousands. Oh, okay. So it's a, it, it's a terrifying prospect. And they are j- mostly centered in the Mornlands, but are Correct. there agents of them oh, yes. around? Yes. Um, and part of it is just uh, you don't know when you're just dealing with a Warforged whether or not this Warforged is on the up and up or if it's somehow connected to the Lord of Blades. Now, most Warforged probably aren't, but they might or should have heard of him mm. and might have thoughts about what he's doing. Right. And it's complicated because what the Lord of Blades is doing is trying to help Warforged, but at the same time, people know the Lord of Blades is kind of out there. You know, he's, he's killed some people and done some other bad things. And so you look at any Warforged, they could be a spy. It just creates even more distrust yeah. of them than before. Um, so that's an interesting thing to play with. That is. And you could play a Warforged character who's getting strange glances and whatnot because... The connection to the Lord of Blades. Yeah. Um, is the type of warfare or, or whatever the Lord of Blades is trying to do, is it, you know, does he use stealth and nefariousness in order to further his goals or is oh, yeah. he much more of a brute? Um, uh, he, he's, he's crafty. Yeah. Uh, he knows that uh, if he puts himself out there, there are lots of people who want him destroyed because if they kill him, yeah, he'll die a martyr probably, but at least... The visionary will will be gone. Will be gone, and so um, there are certainly efforts to take him out, and he knows that. So he is selectively taking out anybody who might threaten his plans or get in the way of his operatives. And so you could be anywhere in the Five Kingdoms or beyond, and suddenly find yourself assailed by the Lord of Blades's um, most ardent, zealous, warforged followers, because. You, for some reason, you're, you're marked as a threat, or somebody you're working for is threatening him. Yeah, and it's obviously a wonderful yeah. uh, group of antagonists. If you're going yes. into the Mornlands to find any of right. this treasure, and in some respects, he is like a terrorist. Um, he has to work with what he's got, and he doesn't have a whole lot. Yeah. So, and and when he wants to get attention or he wants to take somebody out, he's not afraid of the collateral damage. He'll blow up a lightning rail, or cause it to you know fly off its conductor stones. Yeah. If it serves some purpose, if it can do harm to his enemies or slow down their attempts to stop him. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's tons of uh, yeah. uh, hooks in what you're talking yes. about here yes. for Dungeon Masters to play with. Over the, over the years, um, I wrote a side trek about the Lord of Blades for Dungeon Magazine once and added little bits and bobs to him and his personality. So I'm pretty well acquainted with him. 
I gave him two uh, small Warforged sidekicks uh, named Hilt and Pommel. Mm. And uh, they basically are couriers, messengers, spies that he uses to keep an eye on things. Um, often because a villain is cooler when he has foils. Somebody to talk to. He needs someone to talk to, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I was going to ask if he has lieutenants, and that's, yeah, that's, that's yeah, he does. the general ones. And, and, and we've showcased over the years a few of his, his lieutenants. They often have names of swords. Um, like one of them is called Scimitar. Ooh. He's got a, he's got a henchman, lieutenant, subcommander named Scimitar. There's another one I think called Bastard. Ah. Uh, so. I like all these yeah. kind of. Sword. Nicknames. Nicknames, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so there, there's a theme going on with him. Blades, blades all the time. More blades. <laughs> That's why they call him Lord of Blades, right? He's all about blades. If he takes his, uh, you know, if, if, you, you got, he's, he's um, committed to his brand is yes. what I'm trying to say. Yes. yes, he is all in on the brand department. Yeah, he's all about sharp things. Yeah. And, and honestly, D&D has never had a villain quite like him before. I think that's part of the reason why he stands out Yeah, um, as one of the great classic D&D villains of all time. Uh, as I would put him up there with Lord Soth. I would put him up there with um, Xanathar. Strahd. Strahd, yes. Interesting, yeah. because he feels like a much different but powerful yes. force. Yes, and part of it, I think a lot of good attention has been given to make his problems and his personality feel real. Yeah, He's a complex creature, and he reflects how complex you can make something that on its surface doesn't seem like there's a whole lot there. Like, I'm a robot. Well, no, not this one. Yeah. Well, and what's fascinating about it to me is that it does feel very modern. It yes. feels very much like what... Uh, you know, lots of modern, you know, non-fantasy literature is dealing with now. Right. Uh, uh, and in a way where you're like, well, yeah, I know he's doing these evil things, but right. you can kind of see there's where a he's sympathetic, coming from. There's a bit of a sympathetic edge to him. Yeah. You know he's going to get what's coming to him eventually, probably. And certainly in campaigns, you're welcome to kill him off for sure. <laughs> um, but uh, he's, we don't have any plans to kill him off. Uh, I think he's going to be around a long time. Interesting. All right, well... Uh, that's a wealth of information. I, was, I, you know, I usually ask with how DMs can use them, but I think we've already kind of covered that. Yeah, I think I think that it's plainly clear with him. Yeah, there's a lot of range, and he's got a lot of reach. And there's enough reward uh, or potential mm-hmm. reward in the Mornlands for yeah. for adventurers to yeah. to desire to want to come into his realm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Interesting. All right, great. Well, thank you so much, Chris. You're welcome. If people want to ask you more about uh, uh, nicknames they can call Warforged <laughs> that have edged weapons <laughs> as a theme, yeah. how can they get in touch with you? I am on Twitter at Chris Perkins DND. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris. You're welcome. We'll be back with some more lore and or other stuff coming soon. That was a really good Lore You Should Know segment. I feel like we know all about those things that we talked about. And you don't even need need to know it. Only I should. Well, I need to know it. It's Lore Shelley Should Know. Well, that's true. We changed it. Uh, Next time we're going to do Lore Ryan Should Know, and then we're going to do Lore Pelham Should Know, and then it's going to be Lore Quinn Should Know, and then Lore Fiona Should Know. We're going to go through the whole list. That's so cute. We're going to go talk to Walter in New Jersey and, uh, you know, are you calling out people? Like I'm just that calling out random people like Brown Romper Room again. Oh, I love that. I know. That was really, really one of my favorites. You know who we should call up, though? Cody. Yes. Look. From New York City. You're so excited. Let's call her this up. This whole interview is going to be about how great New York City is. Yeah. It yeah. is. Yeah. That's what the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
all right. So yeah, let's 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 call up uh, you know the greatest city in the world. Okay. The greatest city in the world. Represented by Cody Kaplinger. And for our guest, Cody Keplinger. Yay! Welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you all? Doing great. Fun. We're excited to talk with you. Yeah. You are a, uh, an author living in New York City. Uh, I didn't think there were any writers living there. There are yeah. so many of us. <laughs> Weird. Doesn't it's not like a place that I would picture like publishing would be popular, right? Yeah, you know, you know, you know I'm sure it's very shocking. It's you know, it's, it's not as if every like most of the major publishing companies are located here. Or I thought they were in Paris. Yeah, Nashville. Know, Nashville. <laughs> that's not what Nashville. That was known like for. the publishing capital. I don't know. I would be thrilled if publishing was in Nashville. I love Nashville. <laughs> well, is that where you're? Going? I'm going there next next weekend. Yeah, we'll figure it all uh, out. I'll report back and see if it actually is wonderful. The only reason I don't live in Nashville is um, the public transit is not good. Mm. <laughs> and being visually impaired, like driving is not an option for me. If it had better public transit, it would be on in my like top, like in my top three choices of places to live. Really? I love that city. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's a pretty resounding, yeah. uh, uh, you know, endorsement. Nice. I'm going to go check it out. I I've mean, never been. I am biased. I grew up in like two hours north of Nashville in Kentucky. So grain of salt, but yeah. still. That's but awesome. So still. when when did you move to New York? Uh, I was, let's see, it was 2011. I was 19. Um, so, wow. or no, sorry, not 2011. Yeah, 2011. So I was, um, I was 19, almost 20. I uh, was in college when I went to upstate New I was in upstate New York for college. Where in upstate um, New York? Ithaca. <gasps> oh, that's my school. That's my school too. You're in Ithaca? Alone? Yes. Oh my gosh! And I was a writing minor. Were you? Did you? Were you there I was for a writing major? See, they didn't have the major when I was there. That was like yeah, it, was it was like four hundred years ago. Like they barely I'm had sure paper. That's not the case. It was. <laughs> a while. I think it was new. I think it was like only it had been built in the last five or six years when I went there. Or yeah. Like that. That's oh, that's yeah. awesome! Yet another yeah. connection. Alumni. Woo. Uh, I got accepted to Ithaca College, but I did not go. How dare Woo. you? I know because it was way too expensive out of state for me to, to do it. No. Um, it's super expensive. I only got to go because I managed to get like essentially what amounted to a full ride scholarship for the nice. first like two years. Um, and then I started writing. I sold my first novel right before I left. For I was going to say, didn't you already have published your novel by the time you went to college? Or I sold, sold it, it the summer before I left for college. Oh my god! So I went to college knowing I had this this book coming out. Um, and that first six months at college was interesting. So I was a writing major. So I was writing like multiple essays and short stories a week on top of like trying to get the editing done for the book that was going to be published the oh following year. Oh my God, year. that's so crazy. I, I lived on Mountain Dew <laughs> for the first like six months of my college like years. I still do. Yeah. You know, good <laughs> for you. I, I well, mostly just caffeine, not necessarily the Mountain Dew, but Mountain Dew was the caffeine, you know, king. I discovered sort of coffee doesn't work for me. Hmm, that's, You're not putting enough sugar in it. Uh, clearly, I think that was the flaw. That's true. Put a little Mountain have... Dew in it. <laughs> Just go straight oh, off the. It sounds horrifying. It really off the, does. Off the mountain gorges <laughs> of of Ithaca, I think you can make that happen. Yeah, Ithaca is gorgeous. Probably. It is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. I worked uh, uh, at the at the hangar theater for as a theater carpenter for a summer uh, in Ithaca. So I also have like an affinity to 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 that area. My closest friend uh, that I went to college with was an intern at the Hangar Theater. So I have been there multiple times. It's a great place. This is crazy. It is crazy. Small world. 
such a small world. It, it, it completely, it always baffles me. I, when I moved to New York, so I went to Ithaca for two years and then I basically was starting to make money off of writing and my scholarship was running out. And I essentially realized that I didn't make enough on one book deal to pay for one year at Ithaca. Oh, well, that's like a sad statement about college tuition and yeah. also publishing. In general. Yeah. <laughs> and life. And life. And I, I did the math. I was like, it would be cheaper for me to go live in New York City than to stay here. And wow. I was like, that's that's telling. So um, I left after about two years and moved to New York. And I thought, maybe I'll go back one day. We'll see. And I have been in New York for eight years now. Yeah, eight years, uh, like two months ago. It would have been my eight years here. So um, when, uh, I stuck around. When in all that history did you start playing Dungeons & Dragons? Only about two years ago. I actually looked it up on Roll20 the other day because that was where my first game was. And it was in my very, very first game of D&D um, was in February 2017. So I'm, I'm a newbie um, in a lot of ways. I just, once I dove in, I dove in hard. Yeah. We've heard that a lot uh, yeah. from folks who are joining the community uh, in, a, in a more recent time frame, just being like, this is, oh my God, why hadn't I played this before? Yeah, well, like, I always knew it existed, and I always knew I wanted to play. Um, but it felt like something that wasn't accessible for me for yeah. several reasons. One being that I'm visually impaired, and just yeah. someone handing me the player's handbook, I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of very small print and a lot of pages. Um, and then dice are very tiny, and I just thought it's not accessible for me. And then on top of that, my only exposure to D&D when I was in high school, which is when I most was kind of developing an interest, was actually not super positive. It was going to, you know, comic the comic book store where people played D&D &D mm -hmm. and, like, I, I wasn't necessarily looking to play at the time, but just, like, noticing that everyone at the table was a dude. And, yeah. and that whenever a girl walked back into the area, like, of the comic book store where they were, like, to look for a graphic novel or something, things went quiet. And it just felt like, okay, this is not, you know, this is not really a place for me. I knew that there were girls who played, but I didn't know any of them in person. Yeah. And things like Roll20 didn't really exist yet. Um, but I've always been aware of its existence in part because one of my close friends, when I was like growing up in like middle school, we loved writing fantasy stories. And for inspiration, she would go grab her dad's monster manual. Her dad had like oh. monster man, like one of the early monster manuals from like the seventies and eighties. And she would go grab his monster manual and we would pull monsters out of there for ideas for our fantasy stories. Oh, that's cool. That is cool. That's a, and that's I, so I, source. Yeah, it was like, it was a lot of fun. So I've always known it existed and I always wanted to play. I just didn't think it was an option. And then I think it was, like I said, February 2017, um, someone I know here in New York was going to run, um, going to start running Lost Minds of Fendelver. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? Here's my opportunity. I'm going to give it a shot. So, um, I went to her apartment and we actually played, even though we were in person, she ran it via Roll20. And unfortunately, that never really took off. I don't think we ever played again. But once I realized like, oh, oh, I don't have to roll to roll tiny dice. Like this, there's a digital platform I can play on. And like, like there's things like D&D Beyond and there's all these options for me that are going to make this more accessible. Once I realized that, I just, it became an addiction. I, I never stopped. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, you know, we, I don't think we've ever spoken to someone uh, who was visually impaired and how those tools um, are, are used uh, for, for folks like yeah. yourselves. So, so, yeah, talk, talk a little bit about that. How, how does it make it more accessible for you? 
Yeah. So I'm actually working on another article um, about this. I did a piece for the Mary Sue a few weeks ago about like uh, the LGBT community and D&D. And I'm working on one now about blind players playing tabletop games. Because since I entered the sphere, I've actually, through circumstance and kind of randomness, met other visually impaired people who are really active in the tabletop community, mm-hmm. whether that's specifically D&D or other types of tabletop gaming. And I, I realized that my way of doing things is not the only way. Shocker, I know. <laughs> but there are so many ways that these blind players have found to make games successful, not just playing, but running them. I've met blind DMs as wow. well. Yeah. And um, so there's so many different things out there. For me, I tend to use digital platforms. So I use Roll20 almost exclusively for playing because there's several things that that does for me. The first being the, the ability to roll dice digitally and see the number as opposed to a dice in my hand that I can't see. Um, which, that said, it's probably for the best that I can't see dice because I am that person that if I could see them, I would spend way too much money on them. I would have to <laughs> well, I would want all it, the sparkly ones, all yes. the unicorns, all the black like gothic ones. I would have, it would be, it would be a problem. <laughs> so probably for the best that it has worked out this way. Um, so I play that way because I can do that. It also gives me a character sheet that I can um, edit manually and digitally as opposed to after having to write on paper. I can't see a real character sheet in person. Like it's too small print for me. But on a computer, I can zoom in. I can change the colors. I can alter contrast, all of those things. And I can type directly on my character sheet. And that makes things so much more accessible. I'm sorry if you hear minor squeaking in the background. My dog has just run in with her toy. Um, (laughs) That's okay. She's a good girl. She'll probably make an appearance at some point while I'm speaking because she loves attention. She cast minor squeaking on you. (laughs) Right? Um, She's, I love her. I love her already, and I can't even see her. So when, so yeah, so I guess I'm. So you're visually impaired, but not completely. Uh, not completely blind. Right. I am. Um, I'm legally blind. So when you're you when so you're manipulating the documents in a digital way allows it to 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 be yes. easier to to read. Yeah, yeah, and um, not just that, but like in Roll Twenty, I can drag and drop my spells in from the compendium. Yeah, you know, like things like that, which are super helpful. Um, D&D Beyond, I use a lot, actually, for one of the games I'm in. The GM really loves D&D Beyond and owns, like, all the books on there. So when we join the campaign, we have a lot of access to things. And it makes building a character so easy. Yeah. Um, and I love that because keeping track of things in D&D Beyond is even a step farther um, as far as, like, accessibility. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the methods that I tend to use. The other thing that playing digitally offers, though, are maps. Mm. I can't see real maps, and real minis are so little. <laughs> they're still tiny. Um, but they're minis. On, I mean, they're called miniature things. It's right? A, it's For a in reason, the name. yeah. <laughs> um, but on a digital platform, I can zoom in and zoom out. I can have the DM, like, alter the contrast on a map or show me, like, you know, use a ping to kind of show me exactly where we are if I, for some reason, can't see something. Um, change the token border to make it have more contrast so I can spot it all of these things that when I play, if I played in real life, I would need a lot of assistance. Mm. But when I play digitally, it's the amount of assistance I need from other people is so minor that I always let a DM know before I join the game, like heads up there. These are the things you need to know about my visual impairment. 90% of the time, it doesn't even become an issue yeah. because all the things that I, I have all the tools to make something accessible for me because I'm on a computer. Yeah. 
But other blind players do things differently. I've met multiple blind people um, who play in person and they kind of use a combination of digital and analog. So they'll, like, they'll have an iPad in front of them, but they're still using dice. Um, there are places like Dots RP, the Dots RPG project that mm -hmm. do braille dice. Um, and so there's other options out there for blind players. And I couldn't, shouldn't really be shocked because the thing about, the thing about being disabled is when you are disabled in any kind of way, you're essentially living in a world that is just not made for you. It is made with the assumption of ability. Yeah. And so you live your entire life in a world that is made for people who have abilities you do not. But because of this, most disabled people have to be really resourceful and find ways to make the things they want work for them or else there would be so many things that just wouldn't be an option for us. Mm -hmm. And so what I found the most when I find other members of the blind community in any hobby, not just D&D, any hobby, is that there's this amount of resourcefulness that's kind of awesome where everyone has their own way of doing something. Everyone has their own like process, their own routine to make something accessible for them. Yeah. And I think what's really cool about what you're describing is it's very much in the culture of Dungeons and Dragons too. Like yeah. if, if something isn't working for a, a certain player or a group, people just make it up. You know, they house rule, they, they, they find the resources that they need to make whatever story or whatever thing or whatever um, players at the table feel comfortable. And so that's basically what, what people in the disabled community uh, for, for uh, tabletop RPGs are doing. They're just taking that DIY uh, uh, attitude and just applying it to, uh, to, to uh, playing. Yeah, and we are luckily in an age where that is becoming even easier and publishers are starting to get more on board and programs like Dots RPG are starting to like think about these things as well. Yeah. So it's, we're not just kind of left on our own finding our own methods. Um, so like I know that D&D Beyond um, has been working with Dots RPG and I'm going to talk about this in the article I'm writing, but has been working with Dots RPG on getting their uh, screen reader technology a little bit better, like making yeah. it more accessible when people on screen readers. Um, I actually, for research for the article, was so excited, I came across uh, a link to a post that was on the D&D, uh, like the official Dungeons & Dragons Facebook that I can't remember the exact connotations, but that you guys have uh, managed to get something set up where you're working on essentially audio versions of the books for, I think it's like the National, uh, the Library for the Blind, I'm, I, I'm, I'm yeah, putting all my yeah. blind people terms. Yes, okay, I can't remember the exact, the exact, uh, the exact name. If, when I was 19 and much more active in college and, use, and having to use those regularly, I would have known all the details. Um, I'm calling it up but, now because I want to make sure everybody knows about it too. Yeah, but yeah, yes, I was say I'm putting the exact quote from it in like in the piece I'm writing, but I don't have it in front of me, and I'm like I don't want to misquote misquote anything. But, um, but I was so excited when I saw that because I was like, this is awesome. This is going to bring D and D to so many more visually impaired players who you know aren't who don't have as much vision as I do, even for an, for example, who maybe are completely blind and reading digitally isn't as easy or maybe they don't like screen readers as much and having an audio option that's actually narrated could be really useful. And technology, I don't think people always realize this, with audiobooks, technology has changed a lot. There are programs and devices that blind people use. I've, I've used them. I had them when I was in college for this reason where it'll be an audiobook, but like you can put in a specific page number or a specific header and it will go right to that section. Um, it's, and you can place bookmarks, et cetera. Um, it's, 
really, really neat. And there's so much more going on in terms of accessibility for the visually impaired now and the visually impaired and and blind. And so I'm really excited to see that, that Dungeons and Dragons is kind of a part of that, that we're going to be able to see more blind people step into this world because I know I've talked to other blind people where they had the same issue that I did when I was younger with this assumption that these there are these tomes full of rules and spells and these dice that are so little and these maps that are hard to see. This is not something I'm going to be able to do. Yeah. And the fact that that's not necessarily going to be the case now is really exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, well, first of all, the, the, uh, the group that we've been working with is the National Library Service for, for the, the blind. blind and Physically Handicapped. Um, yes. And they recently released uh, the Player's Handbook in a fully navigable audio form. Um, yes. So it's different than just an audio book where people would just be reading it. It's all bookmarked yes. and you can go to certain sections and they describe uh, charts and artwork and things within it. So it's, it's trying to make it as uh, uh, accessible as possible for someone who can only um, hear it through audio form. Yes, and I will tell you this, as someone who used NLB, um, which is, when you say it out loud, I'm like, yes, NLB, that's what we, that's what we yeah. always called it. As someone who used NLB a lot in college, that's, blind students are very familiar with that technology. Right, um, yeah, and because, it's, yeah, it's using stuff that's already there. Yeah, and it's, so that's really exciting that it's like, it's bringing something besides textbooks, which for me, that's my most, most of my experience with NLB was doing my textbooks. Mm. Um, but it's bringing, it's bringing a hobby to people too. And like, I just, I think that's so exciting because I think D&D offers so many things to so many communities, especially marginalized communities. It can offer so many things to them as such a great outlet um, that I'm excited to see it it's going to be an option for even more people now. Yes, exactly. So the, the player's handbook is 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 out there now. Uh, it is if you want to find out about it, it's at uh, loc.gov slash that all may read is the program uh, there. And uh, like I said, the PHP is there, but they're working on a Dungeon Master's Guide and a Monster Manual version. Uh, That's so exciting. Which will be very exciting. Yeah, I can't wait for that. Obviously, there's. You know the PHP is complex, but adding in you know monster manual stuff to describe what happens in the stat blocks and all that is going to be super important. And I love the, that they'll be able to you know look up and be like, oh, let's go to the you know mind flayer and then get all the information about that and and, and figure it out uh, in in that way. Hopefully, that's so the DMs as well as players can uh, be able to use that resource. Um, and you know, I want to go back a little bit to what you were saying, uh, you know, about your first experience, uh, you know, at the at the comic book store and seeing people playing and and you know, the, the, the gatekeeping that could have happened uh, in the past. And one thing that has been a, a big part of what I've been trying to do since I've been here at Dungeons & Dragons is to um, make inroads into those marginalized communities who may have not have seen themselves or, or uh, feel like they were a part of this community to feel as welcome as possible. And we've been making, um, you know, great strides of that towards uh, different communities. And the, uh, the disabled community is one that I think, you know, we've been, you know, not as front and forward about it, but now is uh, a great time to start to add more resources to allow people to to uh, uh, be about. And that's one of the reasons why last fall I played a character uh, on a live stream that we did here that was blind. Like, uh, uh, and I spoke to a D and D player. Uh, he goes by Blind Temple uh, on Twitter. Um, just to make sure, like, oh, I want I want to portray this that as as someone who is blind, but that's not necessarily the defining characteristic of this character uh, and and see that, you know, people who are disabled can be heroes and, and, and have these amazing stories uh, just like any other uh, type of character that could be out there. 
Yeah, and it's always tricky. I, I will be honest, I have yet to play a blind character in D&D. &D. Yeah. I actually have a character I want to play, though. My, like, in one of the characters I've been building in my head for a future campaign, I desperately want to play a blind Battlemaster Artificer. Ooh, neat. Who uses the Iron Defender as essentially a robot guide dog. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> That'd be cute. And uses, like, a sta like a staff, a quarter staff as her weapon, but it also is essentially her cane. Yeah. Like, I just, I just, yes. like... I have yet to play a blind character for a few reasons, but like that's if, when I start, that's the one I want to play. But one reason I haven't is also that I'm always very wary of, I think some dungeon masters are really good at handling those sort of things and others aren't. Mm. Um, so I had suggested when I very first got into D&D, I was going to join a campaign. It ended up not working out in the long run, but I was going to join a campaign. And I remember, remember mentioning to the DM, I'm thinking of playing a blind character. Specifically, it was going to be a sorcerer. And the DM was like, yeah, sure, you totally can. We'll come up with, like, some special, like, homebrew, like, things to, like, basically homebrew magic to make it easier for, to make you, so that you can, like, see magically. And I was like, no, that's kind of not the point. Never mind. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, because that is a common trope that I see used a lot that I'm very wary of, which is the disabled person who has magical cures. And for me, like with blind characters in particular, because that's what I, where I come from, I don't want a blind character I play to have, if they have magic, that's fine. But the magic needs to not make it, make it so they can see. The way I kind of put it to someone recently is, because I'm also like, I'm also, I always play like gay characters as well. I'm, I'm gay and I always play lesbian characters typically. D&D mm. is how I figured out I was a lesbian, fun story. Um, <laughs> oh, really? But, yes. <laughs> yeah, but I... Well, we'll get back to that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but the way I would put it to someone once, I was like, having a blind character who has magic that makes it possible for them to see sometimes is kind of the same as having a gay character whose magic makes them straight sometimes. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, there are alternatives. Like, for example, my idea with like the blind with the with the um, the blind artificer and the idea of an iron defender that's a guide dog, basically. That's an option that is going to make life a lot easier for that character, but it doesn't take away the fact that they're blind. And I remember telling someone this, and they were like, well, what superpowers or what magical abilities don't negate blindness? And I'm like, super strength, super speed, teleportation, telepathy. And I just started naming off all the like, like common superpowers, and they were like, oh, you're right. Because in a lot of people in their head, if you have a blind character, the only type of magic or abilities that they can have are going to be ones that make it so that they're not blind or make it easier for them to see. Yeah. See also daredevil, right. you know? Right. And to me, that's completely count. Like it goes against the point. Like if I'm going to play a blind character, they're a blind character. Yeah. Um, and that's a part of their life and they're still super capable. They can still keep up with the rest of the party. But just like, I mean, I play a drow. I play drow a lot. Actually. I love drow. Drow are like my favorite race to play. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I play a drow who, like, uh, in some ways is the closest I've come so far to playing a visually impaired character because when it is sunny outside... I can't see. Exactly. And that's not usually an issue in a lot of games because we're in a lot of dungeons where it's not sunny. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I still... So usually mechanically, it's never an issue also because I'm, um, I'm, I'm playing a sorcerer, so the disadvantage element doesn't really come up much. But, and that's fine. Um, but I, I role play that as when it's bright. Like, she has... Hard, it, she's light sensitive. She has a harder time seeing, etc. 
Yeah. Um, and I, play, I played so a, a, I, a, a blind healer, which was interesting because yes. it was like touch. You know, almost all the, the, the spells were, were touch-based. I'm like, oh, that made a lot more sense because you'd have to, you know, reach yes. out and, 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 and imbue, you know, the, the powers of your god through, through, you know, through something that a blind person would, would be able to do. Oh, yeah. I, believe me, I've thought about this a ton. Yeah. Because I've been thinking about the mechanics of how you would play, like, blind magic users. Yeah. Because um, targeting is the hardest part to kind of yes, think because, about. Yes, well, the rules specifically say that you can see. And yeah. I'm like, that might be a challenge. I mean, if I was DMing it, I would probably homebrew something. Like, that you can see or, like, maybe there's a perception role or to perceive, see if, like, you yeah. hear it. Like, that you can hear it or you can, that you can perceive, etc. Um, but, yeah, touch. I've thought about that a lot, too. Like, it, all the touch spells, well... That's fine. <laughs> that yeah. works. Exactly. Um, so it would be easy. It would, in some way, be pretty easy to play a blind cleric. Um, which cleric is my? I love playing clerics. I play so many. It's a kind. Of, it's a little bit of a problem. Um, <laughs> I, I literally, when I join a new game, I have to be like, "Don't let me play a cleric again." <laughs> let me go <laughs> outside I, the box a little bit here. That's funny. You, we were just talking to someone who has the opposite feeling about clerics. Like, I never want to be a cleric. I don't want, okay, don't want okay. anyone to depend on me. I will <laughs> challenge that argument because the thing is, with 5e, clerics can be anything. Yeah, They don't just have to be a healer. You could build a cleric who never preps healing spells. I mean, I wouldn't advise it, but you can. <laughs> like, uh, my first cleric ever, which is how I fell in love with it, was a light cleric. And when I realized I could be a cleric who, like, threw fireballs and only healed occasionally, I was like, oh, I'm down for this. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good one. That would be fun. And my, my current sorcerer is, has all of, is going into a couple levels of Tempest Cleric because I couldn't resist. I, even when I built a sorcerer, I ended up going Cleric. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, lo- I love Clerics because of the versatility. I just, yes, they, they have the same spell list, but you can prep complete you can have two clerics in a party who prep such dramatically different spell lists yeah they're they're very versatile for sure and um, i love that it's so fun what do you think about spells like uh detect magic uh or or detect good and evil as a as a visually impaired cleric Ooh. okay so i would reflavor them slightly because i think as it's worded detect magic you can see like an aura around it yeah i would just reflavor it to you hear a buzzing in the direction of Ooh, the magic. That's, that's cool. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And like, then I think they're awesome. I detect magic is, is super useful. And I think that like, if it's like you hear it more like a buzzing, you can hear the magical, magical energy coming off of it as you cast that spell. Yeah. I think that that completely works just the same. So your DM is sighted. Yes. Every D I, I have, I'm in multiple games cause I, I have a problem. Um, <laughs> But all of my DMs are sighted. Have you, so have you ever played with a, a DM who is visually impaired? No, but I really want to. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like you would, would be an excellent dungeon master because I you're already DM- thinking about all of these ways in which you can, can uh, accommodate people with different disabilities. Oh, thank you. I actually have DM'd a little bit um, in a few different systems, um, only a little bit in 5e so far. I, I admit, I find DMing in 5e slightly daunting, although I've dipped my toe in through running modules, which I find really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, then I have kind of all the pieces in front of me, and I'm like, okay, I see how this all works, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is really nice. Um, and actually, it was through dipping my toe into modules that I started realizing how much more inclusive the entire world of, especially the Forgotten Realms, has really become. And I was like, oh, this is exciting. Like, I'm just, like, re- sitting here reading through Dungeon of the Mad Mage, and I'm like, 
oh, oh, hey, this character's a lesbian. It's just like casually mentioned she has a wife. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. And that's all that's Jeremy been, Craw- Jeremy Crawford has done a great job of uh, inserting. And, and, and as we've talked about here on this podcast, like he he makes sure that he doesn't give like extra uh, detail to, to those yeah. characters, you know, because he's like, oh, I would love to, you know, create various backstories for all the gay characters that that are are in our books. But he likes that they're just like, oh yeah, this this is a couple, and yep. they're they're together, and that makes sense. And it's there, and it's clear, and it's. I also love it when like um, there's a character I think in Dragon Heist, um, yeah. like a shopkeeper who's non-binary, and Fala. it's just yes. And it specifically says in the in the module, if players misgender them, the the character they say they remind them that it's they. Yeah. And I was like, I love this. Yeah, like, doesn't get I, mad, doesn't get angry, but just like right. politely will be like, hey, here it is. Yeah, and like as someone who, like I said, is is queer and largely figured that out through playing Dungeons and Dragons, that was super exciting for me to realize that it's not. It's not just me creating my like little gay characters and putting them into the world or my friends who create their like their queer characters and putting them into the world, but like the world that we're diving into, because oftentimes I am playing in Forgotten Realms, the world we're diving into it's it's populated and we are not alone in that. Um and that's really exciting as a player. Yeah. So uh how, how did playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, awaken like, you? <laughs> yeah, it's always it's always a funny thing to say that because people are always like, "That's new." Um, yeah. <laughs> We've heard a lot of how D and D has impacted people's lives, but I think this might be the first. I, yeah, <laughs> I think you may be right. Yeah, it was a combination of D and D, but also other tabletop games too. I'll say it was just getting into kind of the mode of playing tabletop. Yeah. Um, so Role I knew going. In Yes, I knew that I was not straight, but I, it was something that I'd never allowed myself to explore. Like I, I thought I was, I thought maybe I was interested in women, but also still interested in men, but it was something I'd never let myself explore. I think I was not, I don't think it was internalized homophobia so much as just, I had this idea in my head that if I was gay, I would know for sure because so many of my queer friends have known since they were very young mm. and I didn't. So I thought, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm just like, you know, maybe I'm just questioning and I, I don't really want to put any woman in that position of like, I'm just questioning. I don't want to be, I don't want anyone to feel like an experiment. So I'm, I'm not going to engage with that part of my like identity. Um, and then I started playing tabletop games and I created literally every character, but one that I created in a tabletop game ended up being a lesbian. <laughs> Ended up meaning like it wasn't part of the the original character description, but through nope. play you discovered it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, um, one of the characters I played for almost two years. When I wrote her backstory, she had a girlfriend in her backstory, like an ex girlfriend in her back, in her backstory. But I, in my head, had thought she was going to be bisexual, and then through playing her, it became very blatantly clear she was not. And then over time, it became very blatantly clear neither was I. <laughs> Um, yeah. one of my friends who play, has played many games with me kind of at some point goes, there might be a reason you only play lesbians, Cody. <laughs> and, but it was through playing these characters and engaging in their, like their feelings about like their romantic feelings for other women. Um, you know, one, one of that same character that I mentioned that I played for two years ended up getting married to a woman. And it was through playing her and several other queer characters that I began to realize all of these feelings that this character is feeling relate more to me than I thought they would. Mm. 
And I am so emotionally invested in their relationships in ways that I don't think I would be if they were, if they were partnered with a, with a male character. And it just kind of all the pieces sort of started falling together. And it essentially D&D kind of ended up giving me an outlet to subconsciously explore a part of my identity that I had been too afraid to explore in real life. Um, and then, cool. you know, and, and now that's very, very different. Now I'm very much out and very much, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to claim, you know, call myself gay and did pride this year. And it was, you know, it's, nice. it's been kind of, you know, when I say D&D changed my life, it's, it's very true. If I had not come into tabletop games, I don't know how much of this I would have figured out about myself. Um, and I think that's also one reason I end up hyper attaching to some of my characters is because I'm like, and you helped me figure out this about my identity. And yeah. you helped me figure out this about my identity. <laughs> They're all like little pieces of you. Like they really, yeah, they really are. Well, and it's so different too from being a novelist. Because when I write my characters, I, I plan out their arcs. I know everything that's going to happen to them when I'm, when I'm writing a book. But in D&D, it's a collaborative experience. So I don't necessarily know what's happening to them from week to week, which gives me a very different experience of exploring my identity through them. It, it's much more subconscious versus when I write, I'm like, I know exactly what I'm trying to explore here. Yeah. So was that hard for you then to like kind of give up some of that storytelling control with playing D&D or does it feel freeing and... It's both. it's both. It is a little nerve-wracking because there is a level of trust that I think has to be had at a table. Yeah. Um, between between the players, between the player and the, the, the player and the DM. Because you are taking this character that it, you know, if it's different, I guess it's it's a one-shot, it's like I've just put my stats together, here you go. But if it's like a comp- campaign, you take this character that you put a lot of time into. Um, oftentimes I find my, my character's backstory expands as I play and as I get to know them. So you're taking this character that you've put a lot of work and effort into and you're essentially putting them into other people's hands and saying, you know, I hope this works well. Not just the DM and the players, but also the dice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That is the scariest part (laughs) is that even if the DM and the other players, like everyone has a great cohesion and this is like a great collaborative storytelling process, the dice can still screw you over. (laughs) And that's part of the fun of it. And that's part of the risk. And so there is a lot of trust, I think, that has to be had um, for that to work. But for me, at first it was daunting um, because I see all the different storytelling paths a character could take that in my mind would make a satisfactory, like a satisfactory narrative because I think about this when I write books all the time. But I don't get to have that power and it's, it's not in any one person. It's in how the story progresses. And that is both exciting and, and scary. And I think that's probably why I love it so much. Because writing yeah. a novel is a very, very solitary, very isolated experience. Um, I mean, I work with an editor too, but like I usually have a draft done before my editor dives in. I've told the full story. I just now get to go back and change it. Yeah. With D&D, things don't get changed. You play and you know you don't get to go necessarily go back and say that thing that happened four sessions ago, I'm going to edit that to make that more exciting, you know, <laughs> like you do in a book. Um, and basically I think I love D&D because it marries my two loves, writing, you know, which I do for storytelling reasons and theater, which I did a lot when I was in high school and college. And so I kind of get to marry the two things, the two art forms that I have always loved most in a game form. So that's a really exciting process. It's, it's a challenge, but in a good way. For sure. Yeah. So when you're, um, you know, going to talk more about your writing, like when you're developing 
a story or, or a thing like that, do you ever um, use sessions in D&D or things like that in order to inspire you or, or, or create, you Try know, out a story arc a little. Yeah, or, or a character a or, or something like that in, in your stories? I do occasionally, but not necessarily in that exact format. Um, I sometimes will think, if I'm ever thinking about a story I want to write, for the most part, most of my fiction is realistic fiction, so it tends to be modern setting. Oh, okay. But that said, down the road, I really, I would love to write fantasy, but I'm very picky about fantasy. I like really, really rich, really, really built up worlds. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm thinking about, if I ever write a fantasy and I, and I want to, you know, I want to test out a magic system or I want to figure out the different countries and how they interact with each other, I sometimes will think about, okay, that seems daunting if I'm thinking about it in forms of, terms of a novel, but why don't I think about it in smaller steps? Why don't I think about it in terms of a D&D campaign? Yeah. Like, if I was building a homebrew setting for D&D, what, I'll go through the spell book, what spells would exist in this world? Like, how, like, what kind of, what kind of classes would exist in this world? Would there be wizards? Is magic something you can learn versus is magic something that comes innately? So I start asking myself those questions and kind of think about, like, how they would work in terms of the game. Um, whether it's D and D or any other tabletop game, but I find I find that that's a good place for me sometimes to start. My brain is so wrapped up in D and D often that if I look at it in terms of okay, if I was doing this in a game, how would I make this work? Um, and then sometimes, for as far as writing stories and stuff goes, I do occasionally think like if I'm struggling to develop a character, I'm like, why am I struggling to develop this character? But I have several possible D and D characters in my head that I feel very fleshed out. You know, so sometimes I'll take a character that I planned on using for, like, a and d game or something, and I'll, like, strip out the magic elements and just stick with their personality. And I'm like, all right, I have a character. This is a character I'm attached to already in my head, so I can do that. That's interesting. Like, I'm, I'm thinking, as you're talking about that, I'm, I'm picturing, like, going through, like, D&D Beyond Character Builder or something and actually mm-hmm. trying to make, like, a modern-day character from a novel. Like, by not, like, stripping all the magic stuff, but, like, there's yeah. so many backgrounds and flaws and traits and yes. all that stuff that you, you oh, could actually Oh, the flaws and trait system is awesome. Yeah. I love that. I love that. That's a good idea. Right? Use, instead of doing random character generator for D&D, you should do a random novel character. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, we never have to come up with any characters again. We can just hit that <laughs> yes, random button and then the be like, all right, we're going to play with it. And that's who you write about now. I do love random character generator so much, though, because sometimes the results are so wonky yeah. and I'm like... You know, I don't know that I would want to play this character for anything but a one shot, but I would play them in a one shot. Yep. <laughs> but I would, I would love to play this wizard or this, uh, this wizard with a negative intelligence modifier. Right? They're so fun. You never know. <laughs> they're totally broken and not good, but they're but so fun to play. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This How wizard who, by be? the end of the one shot, is like. So I'm thinking that I'm in the wrong line of work. <laughs> I've got Career negative amounts crisis. of spells that I can throw at you. <laughs> yes, yes. I just, uh, I, I love, I love it so much because it just, it's, it's always a good way to amuse myself. If I'm like not doing anything for an afternoon, I'm like, I'm gonna go see what D and D Beyond gives me as a random character and put him in there. But uh, you know, I like what you're saying about uh, fantasy and and thinking about it like a game world. Uh, you know, I, I think I was like you when I wanted to write fantasy stories. I, I was spoiled by Tolkien and being like. Oh, I mean, you have to have a language. Uh, multiple languages re- written and created before you can start writing your fantasy novel and have, you know, a Silmarillion worth of, of, you know, lore and backstory written before you even write your real novels and all that stuff. Um, yeah, which is so daunting. And it's I, so daunting. I, 
I grew up on Tolkien, and then like in recent years, like my my favorite um, like fantasy setting is the Dragon Age setting, the Bioware did. Yeah, and I like, Love those and games. I'm like, it's so, it's so, their games are so good, and they're so rich, and the world is so great, and I'm like, I, I, I'm, and the characters are still great as well. Um, also, a, a setting that's very queer friendly, which I think is probably one reason I got very attached to that at the time as well. Mm, Cassandra. Um, Oh, Cassandra should have been at least by. I'm so mad about it. Oh, she is in my, um, my head cannon. She should be. <laughs> Your head cannon. Yeah. Literally every female character I've ever played has hit on Cassandra. Yeah. And it didn't work out, but I've always tried. Yeah. Um. Uh, <laughs> but like, but so yeah, but I, but what uh, yeah. uh, dungeon mastering has helped me with, because I used to be that kind of dungeon master too, where I'm like, I need to have my homebrew world have every single, know everything about it. But then, you know, in, in, in speaking to, uh, you know, folks here like Chris Perkins, or whatever, it's like, you know, you can, all you really need is create what you need for that session and then move on to the next thing. And if, you, if your characters go to a new area, you're like, you can flush out that area when they get to it. And that idea really was like, oh, you mean you don't have to have, you know, tomes of, of stuff written ahead of time. You can just build out what's necessary for the story. And approaching novel writing like that, uh, uh, at least in a fantasy kind of world-building way, uh, became a little bit more fascinating. Yeah, I think I would have trouble doing that in novel writing so much, but I think what might work for me when I get down the road and I'm ready to sit down and write, you know, a, fa- a full-on fantasy novel is to play out, like, to build the setting kind of like that, like, more session by session. And then once I finish a campaign, I'm like, I have developed a world. Right. Um, and, I, and I've toyed with that to some degree. I, I've run one like, one game in kind of a setting that I had created um, that's current, unfortunately, again, currently on hiatus, but... I've run one game in like a setting I created that I'm kind of hoping to eventually write something set in that universe one day. But it's it's awesome for me to watch other dungeon masters who do create homebrew settings and see how they do it and and watch their process. I think Matt Mercer is a great example of this. I love Critical Role. And I've gotten so engaged in in the world that that he's kind of built using a lot of a lot of D&D lore but also his own lore and it's really fun to kind of watch that play out and watch how the characters kind of progress the lore themselves as well. Yeah. Yeah. It is fascinating. Um, and, uh, for those of you out there who are ready to create stuff, uh, you know, you don't need all the backstory. I mean, obviously backstory is great and, and, and can inform decisions and things like that. But when it, when it becomes a limiting factor, that's where, uh, you know, it loses me. Yeah. I think that's, I think sometimes it's easy to let yourself get, overwhelmed. Um, And then I've also seen GMs do this thing that I also really love, which is um, I I just started in a Ghosts of Saltmarsh game a couple days ago. Nice. And I was talking to the GM beforehand. I'm like, what setting are you using? Are you using Greyhawk? Are you using Forgotten Realms? And he was like, it's has influences of both, but it's a, it's a mostly a homebrew setting. And he was like, the way I like to do this is I have a lot of lore for it. And I will share some of that with you, but I also like for the players to get to add to the lore. So mm. once you develop, once you tell me about like where your character grew up and like the customs and the traditions that she grew up in, that is going to be part of the lore. That's neat. That's and a I was good like, DM. I like, I like that. Like, yeah. and, you know, he was like, if I run future campaigns, I will have, you know, that this clan of sea elves do X, you know? And I, I was like, oh, that's a really, that's really helpful for me as a player too, because then I'm not too overwhelmed with all this lore that I have to catch up on. Um, I'm, but I'm able to add to it and feel very invested in the world because I've contributed to the world. That's so neat. I think that that was a really cool idea on his part. And I'm really excited to see how that goes. Like I said, I've only, I've only just joined, uh, joined it, but 
I love nautical settings, so I'm so stoked to actually oh, get to play through Ghost of Soul. Perfect for you. Do you have a nautical themed pashmina afghan you can wear when you're doing your session? <sighs> Sadly, no. <laughs> no, alas. But I'm. I am I am super stoked because almost every character I play either has a water or lightning theme, and I was like, "Here's my nautical setting to get to do this." I'm I'm doing um a beastmaster ranger, and the DM has helped me create a seal as my oh, as my animal companion. Yeah, it's perfect. I know. I really love this DM. I'm clapping. Like a seal. Like a seal. Like a seal. I'm very excited like for that. Seal. Although I will say, when we played the one session, he was like, you you know, you mentioned the seal. He's like, I'm not doing seal noises. So all the party just starts going, arf, arf, yeah. arf, arf. Once you say that, like, yeah, that opens the right. door to the seal noises. Yeah. So one, one player has volunteered to be the permanent seal noise person. Oh. And I'm like, that's fine by me. I enjoy that. This is a good party. <laughs> so now, so you, you're a teacher as well. You teach writing? Yes. Yes, do you I ever do. employ or think about employing like tenets of like good dungeon mastering into your classes for storytelling? Oh, I'm sure my students get sick of me referencing DD. <laughs> I reference it so much. It's a great tool um, for writers. It is. It's such a good tool for writers. And I have one student who every time I reference it just grins with delight because uh, like she played DD when she was younger and her kids have started playing 5e. Oh. And so every time I bring it up, she just grins like from ear to ear. Meanwhile, the rest of the class is like, we don't understand what you're talking about. Um, but I'm like, I'm like, okay, let me explain because it's important. Um, I talk about D&D when I'm talking about character development because one thing that I find writers do a lot is we've kind of created our own version of a character sheet minus the stats. Mm. Like a lot of writers essentially sit down with like a a list of questions to fill out about your character, which essentially serves the same way a character sheet does. And so sometimes I will, I will use the character sheet like from D and D as like an example of kind of ways to get started with building out, you know, building out your character. If you're struggling, um, building out your main character, if you're struggling, I was like, you don't have to do the stats, although you can, if you want to, that might be really interesting. Um, (laughs) But uh, I was like, you don't have to do the stats, but like look at some of these other things, like like the idea of backgrounds, like the ideas of flaws and traits and bonds and ideals. Um, like these are good places to start and you can expand from there. Um, so I definitely, I reference D&D in that regard. Um, I, gosh, I reference it in almost every way I can. It's, it, <laughs> like I said, so it's D&D and Star Wars. I think at this point my students are like, yes, we get it. <laughs> <laughs> So especially my recurring students who've had me for multiple classes, they're like, Cody loves D&D, Star Wars, and the movie Spirited Away. Those are the three things she's going to reference in this class. Sounds like the greatest writing class ever. Exactly. Right? I think that makes me a good teacher. I think so too. (laughs) So So, where do you get your inspiration then for your novels? Because you've written quite a few novels. How many is it now? Oh, okay. Hold on. Sorry. I, I, so I started writing like a, uh, started publishing like a decade ago. So I am at the point when I have to start and stop and do math. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot of math. Seven, seven books. And my eighth will be out next spring. So where do you, is it mostly young adult that you write for? Mostly, although I've written one book for like middle school age readers, like ages eight to 12. Okay. Um, and then my next book, the one coming out uh, in the spring is also for ages eight to 12. So where, where do you find your inspiration for those books? Literally everywhere. Um, <laughs> Through I, you know, life. <laughs> it, it's one of the most difficult questions to answer because every book has had a different like, spot of inspiration. It could be a song. It could be a, a conversation I overheard on the subway. 
Um, it could be an article I read. Um, my most recent book had some unfortunate inspirations because my most recent book uh, is called That's Not What Happened. And it's about the aftermath of a school shooting. Ouch. And from the point of view of survivors in which the, the person who actually did the shooting, his name is literally redacted throughout the entire novel. Um, you never learn the shooter's name. And I did that on purpose because the thing that had inspired that book was seeing how we as a society cover tragedy, how we talk about tragedy and how oftentimes when we talk about it, we end up focusing on the perpetrators of these crimes and not the victims or the survivors left behind. An easy example would be if I brought up Columbine right now, most people can name the two shooters, but can't name a single one of the victims or the people who survived who were in the library. Yeah. And that stood out to me in part because I'm guilty of it. It was a thing where I was like, oh, I'm culpable in this. And that bothers me. Um, so the inspiration for that book was in some ways me trying to figure out, like come to terms in some ways with how we as a society talk about tragedy and the impact that can have on real people. Um, and that's oftentimes when I'm writing anything, it's because there's a topic that I care about that's on my mind. And for me, writing helps me explore that topic in a way that is, that is somewhat safe. That's fascinating. Like D and D. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the exact the same reason I play D and D. Exploration. Yes. Yeah. Um, the difference being, like with the, with you know with writing a novel, it's a much more personal, much more private experience. Versus with D and D, it's it's a kind of communal storytelling process. Very cool. Um, this is all fascinating. I feel like we've gone, we've covered so much ground. <laughs> I know, and now I want to go back and like dig into all of it. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, but uh, you know, you've you've had a, a storied career telling stories, uh, and uh, you know, we didn't even get to cover what it was like living in New York. I lived there for oh, ten years. Shoot, that's right. Uh, you were so excited. I know. I was so excited. <laughs> he was so excited to talk about that. I I think we may have managed to get through the whole interview without another siren. I know, Maybe. right? There was one. There, there was I, one there. But um, yeah, so we, uh, where do you live in New York? Where, where's, where's your neighborhood? I am on the Upper West Side. I'm just above Hell's Kitchen. Oh, nice. All right, that's a good area. Clinton yeah, is what so they, very, they call it. I, no one calls it. I know. It's yeah, on the like, map, though. I'm always like, why are they? No one calls it Clinton. I think, I think there was like maybe some sort of rebranding they tried to do. Like, yeah. well, Hell's Kitchen sounds unpleasant. So we're going to call it Clinton. I'm like, literally everyone calls it Hell's Kitchen. It's fine. It sounds it will cool. will always be Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. Well, it's and especially now with it being in the Netflix uh, shows on uh, the Marvel Netflix shows, like with Daredevil yeah. or whatever, like they kind of went deeper into the Hell's Kitchen, you know, legendary. Exactly. Exactly. Like, so I'm, um, I'm very, very far west, so very close to Hell's Kitchen. Nice. Well, that's a pretty good area. It, it is. I really like it. Um, I used to, before that, I lived in Washington Heights, which I loved. Yeah. I loved it up there. But, but Hell's Kitchen is a little easier to get places. So, you know, you, you, I traded off what I feel like was such a good close-knit community, which I, also, which I loved for ease of access in some ways. I waffle sometimes. Sometimes I, I think maybe I should go back up to Washington Heights. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful area. Uh, lots of uh, colorful folks, uh, and of course, we. You know, my my biggest connection to it is, is the musical in the Heights. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I heard we. Um, I I heard the music from in the Heights when I was going to school in Ithaca long yeah. before I moved to Washington Heights. And then when I moved to Washington Heights, I was on 181st Street right off the A train. And the opening lines of In the Heights are about that escalator yep. going, oh like going up from the A train. And, I, and, and, and it, it was kind of surreal because I was like, 
oh, I know what this song is about now. Yeah, right. This is a, re- this is a real place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this, like, that escalator, which is massive. It's like this ridiculously long escalator. <laughs> like the longest escalator I've ever seen. Um, it feels like you're so, miles like, underground. You're like, how did we get that far underground? I didn't know we were there. How did this happen? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. But I, um, In the Heights was great. Hamilton's great. I, I used to walk around Washington Heights just sort of like walking my dog, just sort of hoping I would run into Lin-Manuel Miranda. Like, I know people who have. Some of my friends who lived there were like, oh, yeah, I see him walking his dog every day. I'm like, why haven't I? I also have a dog. Um, right. That's how you meet people with your dogs. It's true. It's true. And yet, I haven't. I do think me being blind has been a disadvantage. There is a chance I have passed him on the street and oh. just was too blind to know it. Maybe your two dogs were even, you know, uh, yep, uh, meeting sniffed. and talking and sniffing and you didn't your dog, even know. Your dog might know him. You don't even know him. <laughs> yeah, Corey, Corey is over here like, I Corey. Know what you're talking about. I've met them several times. So. <laughs> I've definitely sniffed their shoe at some point. I'm like... Why didn't you tell me? No, I'm, I'm convinced because all of my friends here in, the, in New York are like, oh, I run into, so I see celebrities on the street all the time. I'm like, I've never seen a single celebrity. And they're like, Cody, don't know how to play this, but it might be because you're blind. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, that's fair. <laughs> I could be celebrities literally every day and just not know. Just not know, right? And if you don't recognize voices and they're not, they're not yelling talking, loudly into their, you know, Bluetooth their headset. Their most known character's voice. Yeah. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> exactly. I recognize voices. So if they're not talking directly to me, I, I'm not going to know. Yeah. Heck, and even then, I need to probably talk for a couple minutes. Like you could, I, I could have been asked for directions by super famous people, and I would just have no idea. And they loved it because they're like, oh, usually we get, uh, you know, fond over <laughs> or whatever. And they're like, oh, she, she just gave me directions. What a great person. I always think of that as kind of this hilarious thing. Because I've, I've been in a position, one of my books was adapted to film. So, like, I've been on a movie set. I've been on red carpets. But here in New York City, it's like, I never see famous people. Right. And, and everybody's just like, I guarantee you, you have. And you just don't know. Well, speak- like, I've had friends who've been here two weeks and have passed, like, you know, <laughs> Zac Efron on the street or something. Some people just seem to have an eye for it, too. Yeah. Like, I, I was never that person. I, but, um, I don't recognize anybody. Speaking I, of, the only, the only really exciting uh, uh, person that I wanted to ask you about uh, who is on The Duff was Mae Whitman, who I... I love her. I th- she is uh, a favorite person of mine because she voices Tinkerbell in the Tinkerbell movies. <laughs> I was going to bring that up because I was listening to one of the episodes the other day where you talked about the Tinkerbell movies. <laughs> They're so oh, yeah. good. They're so good. And uh, <laughs> uh, is she as adorable in, in, in person as uh, you know, she is in those movies? Yes. So I have a fun story about Mae Whitman. When I wrote The Duff when I was 17, years before the movie was even a thing, she was kind of who I had in my head for the main character. No. Really? Yes, which the film company, so I had no say in the movie. I want to make that super clear. I was not involved in the movie at all. I got to go to set and I got to go to the premiere. That was the extent of my involvement. <laughs> so they had no idea. The film, the production, like the, the crew who made the movie had no clue that she was who I imagined as the main character. But I posted it on my blog and everything like back in 2010. When people had like, blogs. The, the only two people, right, when, when blogs were still a thing. Um, <laughs> the only two people I could imagine as that main character were either Mae Whitman or um, Ellen Page. Like both of them kind of had a vibe that I liked. Yeah. And so I've grown up following Mae Whitman because my mother was obsessed with the movie Hope Floats when I was little. And she plays the little girl in Hope Floats. Wow. So I followed her for a long time. Um, So then my agent called me when the movie was happening and everything and they were starting to be casting. My agent called me and was like, 
like, you're not going to believe this, but they've cast the main character. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he's a good man. And she's like, May Whitman. And I'm like, you're messing with me. <laughs> and she's like, no. <laughs> so, um, of course, once we told CBS Films, like, I've actually always wanted her to play the part. part. They were like, say that in every interview. That sounds, that's a great oh, thing to Right. Like, yes. <laughs> great. Um, that's good I'm PR. Like, yeah, exactly. But she is awesome in real life. She's very funny. She has one of those personalities where, like, you know those people where when they're talking, literally all eyes are on them? Yeah. Like, she has one of those personalities that anytime she would stop and tell a story, literally everyone in the room was watching her. Yeah. And, like, she was so sweet and just and so friendly and, and funny, just as funny in real life as she is, like, in, in, in movies. And I, yeah, she was, she was so great. I was so thrilled. She and Robbie Amell, who played the other lead, both were just so nice, and I was so thrilled to get to to get the the small opportunities I had to interact with them. That's so cool. Oh, that's awesome. What a great story that 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 she was what you were imagining and then know, ended up happening crazy. for real. You conjured it up. I feel like we we have to close this down, but there's so much more I want to ask you about. Like, what's it like to see a a story that you made up actually then get made into something you know larger than life? I mean, that's without that's, having the involvement in it too. Yeah, hope right. for the best. Yeah, very they, much. They I nailed the that. casting, so fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, really, I, it, it's so fascinating because I love the movie. The movie is fantastic, but it's so different from the book. So it's kind of one of those interesting things where it's like people ask me all the time about it, and I'm like, the best way I can tell you to do what to do about the movie is treat it as really, really high quality AU fan fiction, yeah, like alternate universe fan fiction. I'm like, because if you're going in expecting it to be the book made over, you're going to be disappointed. But if you go into it saying this is going to be kind of an alternative version of this story in a different medium, you're going to love it. Like, the movie is so fun. And I found most of my fans have had that, exactly that experience. They were like, I was really worried because it looked so different. But, and it was different, but it ended up being a really good movie. It's a lot of fun. I'm like, good. That is, that is the best way to approach, honestly, any book-to-film adaptation. Because yeah, I am I'm very much in the true. camp of the book is almost always better. Um, and I think almost. a lot of times the book is almost always better because you're going in expecting the movie to be like the book. Yeah. But if you go into it expecting that this is a different medium, this is a different storyteller's take on a similar subject matter, I think it oftentimes lends itself to being um, being a more pleasant experience watching the movie and that you could enjoy it as because it is it's a different medium, it's a different way of telling a story. Yeah. yeah. And for sure, I mean, it must way. be similar to like a D and D writer creating their adventure and then like hearing about what crazy thing happens when someone's running at their table. They're like, well, you know, it's. It's very different from the way I wrote or or conceived of this story, but I'm so excited that you got to experience it and add your own flavor and make it, you know, uh, something exactly. just as awesome. I'm sure. I'm sure if those who, uh, if everyone who wrote uh, um, Dragon Heist heard how I played through Dragon Heist, they'd be like, "That was not how I expected that to go." But okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's an option. Follow your bliss. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I it's it's an interesting process, um, and it was a learning experience for sure. Well, awesome. Well, we will definitely pick your brain on more of these things when you come back, uh, Cody. It was really great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Yeah, our pleasure. If people want to uh, find out all about your work and what you're doing, what's the best way they can do that? So um, probably the easiest way would be to go to my website, which is CodyKeplinger.com. That's Cody with a K. Um, Or I'm like doing hand gestures, like making a K off camera. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
and uh, or Twitter, uh, which uh, where I am Cody underscore Keplinger. Um, mostly, all I tweet about is D and D and my dog, but occasionally I do updates there as well. Okay. Well, I mean that's Two like ninety percent of our topics. audience. Yeah, right. Dogs, uh, dogs, and people who like D and D. Yeah, right. We're very exactly. popular with the pets. <laughs> the mostly pets, cats, pets love but, us, but. Dogs do. <laughs> oh, I will say. Well, I will tell you this. I don't think my cat loves you because D and D. Every time I sit down to play a session D and D, here comes my cat putting his claws in my legs because I'm not paying attention to him. Oh, ouch! My Throw dog some dice down. Me. Cats seem to really like dice, though. I'm sure he actually. You're, you're, that's not a bad idea. Do you have some D sixes at home? Maybe next time he's annoying me, I'll just throw a D six on the floor. Yeah, and he might. Happens. They'll just like bat it around for a little while. Yeah, they just like rolling dice. That's probably what your cat is telling you. Let me roll the dice for you. Let me play. Let me play. And then if you put a laser pointer on the dice, then you're good to go. Oh yeah. Oh, that would yeah. Or that would map. work. That's how you get I the have, cats to go. I have been known to right before a D and D session starts, just pull out catnip and be like, "Here, take it. Entertain yourself." Yeah, <laughs> it's like you're going on a plane Pot ride in. or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Cody. Uh, uh, yeah, you've been uh, fantastic. I love it. Thank you. We'll this was lovely. All right, say hi to everyone in New York for me. I yes, I will. I'm sure we know everyone the same. It's such a small town. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That was a fantastic interview. Even though there was singing. There should have not have been singing. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. We're contractually not allowed to be singing right now. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. Ask for permission. Do you hear that? It's an earthquake. That's the lawyer's footsteps coming down the hall. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> That's the... We're, all of a sudden, we turn into we Foley were, artists. If this really was like a musical, it would be like, oh. Oh, no. Dun, Briefcases on the table. You have broken the law. <laughs> <laughs> I loved how angry you were. I'm a theater major. <laughs> I embodied the angry lawyer. <laughs> you have broken the law. No. I know what I saw. <laughs> hey, that rhymed. <laughs> you leveled up in uh, improvisational I'm music stuff. I'm making a call. Because you can have a little leeway there. Oh, that's call like a slant call. rhyme? Yeah, that's yeah. a slant rhyme? Yep. Yeah, that's what Emily Dickinson called really? that a slant rhyme. Oh, yeah. I didn't know there was a name for that. Yeah, we learned about that in the English class. No way. Yeah. Are you an English major? I was an English major uh, and a theater major. Double two major. Degrees. Double the useless major. That was the joke that I always said. <laughs> I'm yes, twice I'm like, as sure not to find a job. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I found one that uses most of it. Luckily, Ish. I found one that didn't care. <laughs> and then let me sing on a microphone. Uh, you know what else lets me sing on a microphone? Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's why we love it. Yeah. I, I like to play the bards. Do you? I, I do. Uh, I haven't played one in a while. But Do you I, sing a lot when you're a bard? No, because I never, uh, you know, and maybe I could once I did, like, built up that muscle. But, you know, you need to have that, um, uh, imp- like, you know, like, whose line is it anyway? Uh, Wayne Brady kind of. Oh, man. Like, if you just Why have that practice going on. those guys play D&D? They do, actually. I've actually heard that Wayne Brady does play well, Dungeons and Dragons. he needs to be. I know. Let's get him on. That would be amazing. Anybody know Wayne Brady? Uh, let me know. Crowd, we're crowdsourcing. We're crowdsourcing all of our, all of our, our booking. We need pro- reality TV producers. We need Wayne Brady. That's it. We Def Leppard. We'll be done. Just if anyone. Just the drummer. I really just want to talk to the drummer. I want to talk to the whole band. <laughs> Let's go to Vegas. Do for they their still small have their hair? Is it still as big as it was back? I don't think it's as big. Okay. Yeah. I might. I might have lost a few strands by this time. Maybe. Yeah. 
I anyway. would love to have Def Leppard on. That's true, as well as Wayne. Maybe at the same time. Maybe they could have, like do like a. They probably are playing D and D together right now. I, I, in my mind, they are. This is the world's greatest game. It is. Uh, so if you f- have any lines on any of those folks, hit me up at Greg Tito on Twitter. Uh, I'm also on the Instagram, Greg underscore Tito there. I haven't been posting that much, but I, there are a few stuff of me playing with, uh, my girls. We played the essentials kit, which is out in stores in, uh, sorry, in Target, uh, right now in North America. It'll be available everywhere on September 3rd. It's a fantastic box set. Yes. It really gets you into playing the game, like, right away. Can we talk about this, the, that it's from, for two to... Two to six players. Six players. Yeah. Two. That means, yeah. The, the sidekick rules in there allow you to play pretty easily with just uh, one dungeon master and one player. That's really cool. Yeah, it, it was easy and fun. And did you do it? Yeah. Is that what you did I, with The only Penny? times I played the Essentials Kit, I, I played it with uh, my daughter, and then I played it with a coworker here in uh, uh, the office. No way. Just one-on-one. Yeah. One-on-one? One-on-one. We could start... I scheduled a one-on-one to play D&D one-on-one. We could start a Dragon Talks with like a quick little one-on-one. Oh, yeah. Do you want to start... Role playing like that mm-hmm. on the podcast. Mm-hmm. That sounds like we need a new podcast. But I, I feel like that could be like my small, tiny intro to DMing. <gasps> I like this. Actually, I want to talk to you about a segment that is uh, that you would do with other people, like being like, "What is like teach Se- Shelly how to DM?" Oh, okay. But I'm not DMing. But, but you're the interviewer, like interviewing okay. uh, expert DMs and being like, what was your first experience like? And then doing okay. like, an interview with them. You want to do that as a, yes, new, as a new segment? that's really cute. All right, nice. I'm glad DM that I'm pitching this live on air to you and you're like, yes, because it would be really crappy if you were like, no, I don't want to do that. So I'm really happy to do Mastering the Dungeon Master. So if anybody wants to be interviewed for that, you should hit up Shelly on Twitter. Expert DMs want it. Wait, they're not like in person. I'm just going to talk to them alone in a room like this. I, well, it depends. You can you can produce that segment however you like, Shelly. Oh, now you lost me. What's your Twitter handle? At Shelly Moo. People are going to be talking to you there about this. Okay. Okay. Let's keep thinking. Now, I think we should also be investigating what's happening uh, in this cave because it looks a little dicey. Oh, no pun intended. Dicey, get it? Like, uh, I'm picking up what you're putting down. But, you know, I think there's a rumbling, there's an earthquake, things are going to fall on my head. No, not possible. Oh, I-